0: Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so humbled by the great reality that when we come to your Word, you speak. The Bible is your precious Word, your revelation. And I pray that even now as we open it, that our hearts may be teachable and tender to what you would have to say to us. Father, remove distractions from our minds. Remove distractions from, Lord, our just our thoughts that wander off into so many worries and concerns about life. Father, help us to lay those at the foot of your gracious cross. We Thank you for the fact that we have the opportunity to worship together as your people. Lord, give us a heart that embraces that which you would have to say to us by your Spirit. Lord, we know that unless your Spirit works in our hearts and lives, nothing will happen. So help us. And the power of your Spirit to be people who implement these things to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark 9. And we're going to be looking at verses 38 through 50 this morning in Mark chapter 9. Title of this morning's message is Kingdom Principles for Kingdom Citizens. And I want to read Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 50 for us. This is the Word of God. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink... Because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell and to the unquenchable fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your, your two feet to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. As I said, the title of this morning's message is Kingdom Principles for Kingdom Citizens. You know, back in 1977, Johnny Cash, whom some of you are familiar with and Others of you are definitely not familiar with Johnny Cash, so you need to get exposed a little bit more and be a little more well-rounded, okay, if you don't even know who Johnny Cash is. But Johnny Cash wrote a song back in 1977 titled, No Earthly Good. No Earthly Good. And here are the lyrics to that song. Come heed me, my brothers. Come heed one and all. Don't brag about standing or you'll surely fall. You're shining your light and shine it you should. But you're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. If you're holding heaven, then spread it around. There's hungry hands reaching up here from the ground. Move over and share the high ground where you stood. So heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. The gospel ain't gospel until it is spread. But how can you share it when when you've got your head? There's hands that reach out for a hand, if you would. So heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. If you're holding heaven, then spread it around. There's hungry hands reaching up here from the ground. Move over and share the high ground where you stood. So heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Catchy um, little tune that that song was. And the song was written, of course, as you might have caught on already, to encourage professing Christians to be a light on the earth. And I think that old saying can be true. That sometimes Christians are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. certainly don't want to be Christians who sort of stick our heads in the sand and are ignorant of the needs around us. But the opposite is also true. You can be so earthly-minded that as you look at the needs around you, you live in fear and anxiety and despair because you're so wrapped up in all that's going on that you've forgotten about eternity and about heavenly things. Consequently, you lose perspective and feel powerless to be of any earthly good. We feel the tension, don't we? I mean, on the one hand, Christians acknowledge the pain and the the hardship of living in a fallen, broken world. The Lord Jesus said, in the world, you will have trouble. We feel that. But on the other hand, Jesus also said, I give you my peace, that where I am, there you may be also. And so as Christians, we recognize that this world is not our home. That our hope is is anchored in Christ in in a future kingdom where righteousness dwells reserved for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And I want to remind us that this world will one day be no more. It will be no more as it stands. And that God is now declaring to all men all over the world that they should repent of their sins and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came to die for sins on the cross and rose from the dead three days later, you can be forgiven of your sins. You can be rescued from God's judgment for your sins. You can be reconciled to your Creator and be a part of this kingdom that we look forward to, where Christ reigns, and all those who put their trust in Him. Well, if you've been paying attention in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been emphasizing this kingdom again and again and again in the Gospel of Mark. He's been preaching this kingdom. In Mark one fifteen, it says that he was preaching, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven or of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He spoke of this kingdom, aspects of this kingdom also in the, in the parables. Back in Mark chapter 4. And he's been speaking of this kingdom right before our passage. By way of his illustration, he spoke of Christians who have received the kingdom as or like children. And these Christians are to cultivate humble dependence as children, as citizens of this kingdom. You see, the kingdom has been very much on the, on the forefront of the Lord's preparation of his disciples. And now, as his death is approaching in just a few months, Jesus knows... That his disciples need to be armed for living life here on earth as kingdom citizens. Tough times are upon them. Tough times are upon them. They live in a fallen, broken world of disciples as well. And on top of that, Jesus in a few months will suffer and die on the cross. They're trying to get their, their minds wrapped around that. And so they needed to be, to be armed for living here on earth as kingdom citizens. And brothers and sisters, if the Lord's disciples needed to be armed as well, so do we. So do we. As we see the events in our world more than ever, we need to be thinking about what this means to live by kingdom principles as we anticipate the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we live in the here and now as kingdom citizens? How do we live in the here and now? What does this look like? I think the principles that the Lord teaches his disciples here are very helpful for us as we navigate life. And I want to call our attention today to some kingdom principles that you and I are to live by if we're going to have an impact for God's glory here on earth. And the first principle that I want to call our attention to that the Lord teaches here is that the disciples and us, by way of application, need to live by the kingdom principle of love. The kingdom principle of love in verses 38 through 41. But in particular, and more specifically, pinpointedly, a love that is shown in their acceptance of other Christians as citizens of the same kingdom. I think one of the harmful sins that exists amongst many Christians is our tendency to draw lines of separation where the Bible has not drawn those lines. And the Lord has something to teach us about this this morning. Now you may remember Jesus and his disciples are in his ministry headquarters in Capernaum, and there's this home that they continue to return again and again, and most believe that this is Simon Peter's home in Capernaum, which became Jesus' ministry headquarters. They're still here in this home. And if you remember, Jesus has just taught his disciples a great lesson on humility. And in order to illustrate what humility looks like, the Lord takes a little toddler to himself and teaches the disciples that this is the way that people are to receive the kingdom as or like a little child in humble dependence. Little children are needy. Little children are weak. So must a person who seeks forgiveness from God for their sins. You must come weak and needy, recognizing your own sin, acknowledging your sin before a holy creator and your need to be forgiven. And that forgiveness is given to us through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so little children became a common illustration, illustration for the Lord during his incarnation to teach on both the way that people come into the kingdom, humbly dependent like a child, and the type of humble posture that Christians need to cultivate in their Christian life. And so children became this illustration for believers, for followers of Christ, not literal children, but Christians, followers of Jesus And so Jesus says, in your treatment of one another, you are to serve one another. For as you humbly serve one another, you are serving me. This is what he's getting at. If you look with me in verse 37, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me but him who sent me. Jesus is saying, when you receive, you welcome, you serve, show kindness to others, you are serving me, and not only me, but also my Father as well, for he and the Father are one. John chapter 10 and verse 30. Now this is very important, so pay attention, okay? It's on the heels then, of verse 37, that John's conscience is stirred by Jesus' teaching on humility in connection with how we treat other Christians. The Apostle John is sitting there. And this strikes a chord for him. This so that this, this bothers him as he's hearing this thing. And, and his conscience is stirred by Jesus' teaching on humility here. Ever have one of those moments? When maybe someone says something... Or maybe you hear a message or you open up God's word and God speaks to you and your conscience is is stirred and you're reminded of something that you said or did and maybe it leads you to to be bothered. Maybe even feeling guilty about something that you did. The last thing that we want to do in those moments is to sweep those things under the rug. To bury them. Instead of coming to the Lord and, and confessing that to the Lord and confessing that to others who maybe we've hurt in the process. Well, John has one of those moments here. Look at verse 38. John said to him, said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. Hmm. Apparently, somewhere along the way, the disciples had come across a man who was successfully casting out multiple demons, not just one demon, but plural, demons in your name. This man was doing this in the name of Jesus. He was casting out demons in the power of Christ and by the authority of the name of Christ. And genuinely doing this. And the disciples see this And the sense here in verse 38 is that they took issue with him. They were continually trying to prevent him. Continually trying to hinder him from doing this. Hey, stop. Knock it off. You're not one of us. You're not one of the group. He was not following us, they said. Now we may ask at this point, what's wrong with shutting this guy down? I mean, here's some person... Casting out demons in the name of Jesus and visibly succeeding at it, but he's not one of the twelve disciples, one of the official disciples. Wouldn't you and I out of zeal do the same thing? Hey, you're not one of us. You can't just do that. We can identify with this. But, as our assessments are always second to those of Christ, listen to what Christ's response is to John in verse 39. But Jesus said, do not hinder him. Literally, stop hindering him. Stop forbidding him. It's an imperative. It's a command here. Stop forbidding him. Why? For there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. There's no neutrality for Jesus. You're either against him or you're for him. And this man was for him. Jesus is saying, no one who is genuinely casting demons like this, who is sincere, genuine, and ministering in my name, will soon after turn against me. Speak evil of me means to vilify me. To vilify Christ. For he who is not against us is for us, in verse 40. See, Jesus takes issue with them and gently rebukes his disciples, beginning with John. And what Jesus is saying is, in essence, he's on our side. He's a follower of Christ, a man laboring for the kingdom, sincerely fighting against the kingdom of darkness. Leave him alone. Let him minister. Let him minister. Now let's push back a bit. What's going on here? I mean, is the Lord being naive? Doesn't he know that there are deceivers, people out there who who give lip service to following after Jesus Christ, but who do lead people astray? Doesn't Jesus know that? And of course, the answer is, of course he knows. Of course he knows. We've seen Jesus' perfect wisdom in the Gospel of Mark. Not only his unrivaled power, but also his wisdom throughout the Gospel of Mark. And please don't forget that Jesus knows the hearts of men. John chapter 2 and verse 24 speaks of the fact that Jesus knew the hearts of men. Luke chapter 9, verse 47, spoke of the fact that Jesus knew the hearts of people. This is Jesus we're talking about. And because of this, we need to remember that Jesus' assessments of people are always right. And so knowing this man's heart, whoever he was, Jesus says, he's not opposing us. He's a co-laborer. Leave him alone. Don't tell him to stop. He's on the same team. Notice what Jesus adds in verse 41. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. He's simply reminding them of what he's been saying all along in in these texts. That as Christians labor for the kingdom and show kindness to one another for the name of Christ, they will be rewarded for their kind deeds and service to one another. And so this man wasn't some charlatan wasn't some false teacher claiming to cast out demons. He was a follower of Christ. He was a, a partner in the same gospel, a citizen of the kingdom of God. Hear me, brothers and sisters. He was a brother to the disciples, minus Judas Iscariot, of course, who was never truly genuine, never truly a brother. And yet, though he was a brother in the Lord, they had become loveless in their approach to this man. They had adopted a very, very sectarian, very separatistic and exclusivistic attitude towards this man, towards this brother in Christ, because he wasn't a part of their group. He is not one of us. He's not one of us. See, the disciples weren't the only followers of Jesus. There weren't many, but they weren't exclusively Jesus' followers, and yet they were acting that way. We need to think about this for a few minutes. Isn't this so easy to do? To treat other Christians with this type of loveless exclusivism. Believe as I believe, no more, no less. Believe that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel. Think as I think. Eat what I eat and drink what I drink. Look as I look. Do as I do, then and only then, I'll fellowship with you. Sometimes we can have that kind of an attitude. Christ died to pay for sins and cried out, It is finished. He rescued us who have trusted in Him as our Lord and Savior from the penalty and the power of our sin. And one day the presence of sin, He has unified a people for Himself. He is the Lord of the church, the unrivaled Lord of the church And yet, how often does the mighty me or I fight or scuffle for preeminence? It becomes not about Christ, not about the gospel, not about non-negotiable truth, but about me and my little group or my association or my sanctified, quote-unquote, clique. We draw lines where we shouldn't where the Bible hasn't drawn lines of separation between Christians. You say, but Kempis, shouldn't we be discerning? I mean, not all who profess to believe in Jesus actually follow Jesus. There are people who deceive. There are people who lead others astray. Amen. Preach it. There are. And we should practice godly, biblically informed discernment. This is why we have a doctrinal statement even here at our church. You need to. You, you can read that online, download that, and when you become a member of Calvary Bible Church, we we are very clear about what we believe. There are some core essentials that we must agree on, and there are some very important secondary matters that you can be on. A, on a, you can see things a little bit different, and we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a difference, however, between being discerning. And being sinfully exclusivistic and narrow-minded on secondary matters, on preferences. See, so often we've determined someone is a genuine Christian... They trust the same Christ. They preach the same pure gospel. They show the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in their life. They they are practicing loving obedience to the Lord. They're following after Christ. They genuinely love Jesus. On and on the list goes. But even after all of this, after witnessing their genuineness and following the Lord, we still treat them with contempt. We still treat people with indifference. We exclude them from our fellowship because they don't do everything the way that we do it. They don't look the way that we look. They don't talk the way that we talk. They don't believe every single aspect, secondary issue or preference, the same way that we believe. And so what the Lord is teaching His disciples and us here is that you and I must be careful that we don't become so narrow-minded in the sinful, separatistic kind of sense, so exclusivistic that we forget that we are part of the same team. This is one of the most respectable forms of pride in the church because it is so subtle and yet it is so destructive. And as we saw last week, Jesus is very concerned about pride in the hearts of his disciples. He wants them to be humble men who laid down their lives for him by serving other people, by putting other people before themselves. Jesus is very concerned about the pride of His disciples. You know why? Because they are well taught. Because they are very well trained. But Jesus, more than anyone else knew, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, edifies. So He wants them to be humble men. Humble men. Beloved, we must guard ourselves from being so sinfully narrow-minded that we're always picking a fight with somebody about some kind of an issue. Once upon a time, there was a man standing on a bridge contemplating death. The man was thinking about throwing himself into the river and committing suicide, taking his life. And another man rushes over to talk to him out of killing himself. Sir, what are you trying to do? The man says, I'm trying to kill myself. Why would you do that? The man says, I've got nothing to live for. Sir, let me ask you a question. Trying to reason with him. Do you believe in God? Man says, I do believe in God. What a coincidence. I believe in God too. Let's talk some more. Are you a Jew or are you a Christian? Man says, I'm a Christian. What a coincidence. I'm a Christian too. Let me ask you, are you a Protestant or are you a Catholic? Man says, of course I'm a Protestant. What a coincidence. I'm a Protestant too. Anglican or Baptist? man says i'm a baptist what a coincidence i'm a baptist too particular baptist or general baptist man says i'm particular so am i amillennial or premillennial man says i'm a premillennialist what a coincidence so am i are you partial rapture or are you full rapture the man says partial rapture well at that point he pushes the man off the bridge And as the poor guy's falling, he shouts down to him, Die, you heretic! I think I can hear some of you laughing. It's not a true story. It's a funny, fictional story. But isn't this sometimes our attitude toward one another and towards others? We become so sinfully narrow-minded, exclusivistic, drawing lines of separation where we should not draw lines of separation. You know, we can do this... And act this way toward one another in the church. Where rivalries can exist. Where competition can exist. Where instead of rejoicing in the growth and the success of others, we become jealous and resentful toward another brother or sister. Like the disciples. Who, were in, the, who in their heart were probably jealous and envious towards this brother. Because remember, just recently, nine of them were unable to cast out a demon out of the demon-possessed boy. And here's this brother doing this genuinely in the name of Christ. Jealousy. Oh, the proud, destructive sin of envy and jealousy in the church, brothers and sisters. R. Ken Hughes is helpful here. He writes, It's a curious fact that jealousy is a tension often found among professionals, the gifted, the highly competent, You know, doctors, singers, artists, lawyers, businessmen and women, authors, entertainers, preachers, educators, politicians, and all public figures. Strange, isn't it, that such capable folk find it nearly impossible to applaud others in their own field who excel a shade or two more than they. Jealousy's fangs may be hidden, but take care when the creature coils, no matter how cultured and dignified it may appear. Wow, that's true, isn't it? See, we must be humble people who guard ourselves and ask the Lord by His grace and by His Spirit and His Word and the exhortation of others to help us guard against pride like this. Manifested in sinful jealousy and envy, a sinful narrow-mindedness, an exclusivistic attitude towards other believers. The root of all of those things is sinful, wretched pride, brothers and sisters. Let's not be this way. Let's be quick to love one another by affirming the evidences of God's grace in one another. Let's love one another by remembering that we're on the same team. We work for the same Lord. We're, on the, we're serving for the same ultimate kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. Let's love one another. Let's not draw lines of separation like the disciples did. Well, the Lord didn't draw them. Let's not herald any subgroup above Christ. Let's remember that we won't agree on everything, but as long as we agree on the essential things, we can love one another and work together at the highest level, be it in the church, with people in the church, or people, Christians outside of the church. What about you and I? What about you this morning? Do you tend to have an attitude of elitism, of exclusivism, of jealousy? A competitive spirit, a sinful narrow mindedness, a prickly attitude towards anyone who doesn't see every single issue just the way that you see it? Or do you have Jesus' informed, loving, forbearance, and tolerance? Are you Christ like, like Him, in both your attitude and commitment to His kingdom? Where are you at this morning? See, all of us need to grow in love for one another. You know what I find so beautiful and comforting about all of this? That the Apostle John, who poses the question to Jesus, was one of the sons of thunder, given that name by Jesus because of his fiery personality. He was not naturally a gracious guy. But eventually, he becomes affectionately known in church history as the apostle, ready for this, of love. Of love. There's hope for me. There's hope for you. There's hope for us by the grace of God. When you read John's letters and epistles, there's such a balance there of, of truth and love. Such a wonderful balance. God had changed this man who was a man living by the grace of God, just like you and I as believers, the Apostle John. So there's hope for us, brothers and sisters. By God's grace, we can grow in love in this particular area. We're kingdom citizens, and we live by the kingdom principle of love, of love. Second, we are to live by the kingdom principle of holiness, of holiness in verses 42 through 48. Now, we, before we begin looking at these powerful verses here, um, a word on verses 44 and verse 46. If you have a new American standard Bible translation, you will notice that verses 44 and 46 are both bracketed verses. And what those brackets indicate is that our earliest and best manuscripts don't contain those verses. I believe the New King James Version keeps verses 44 and 46 in there with maybe a notation communicating the same thing. The ESV simply adds at the end of verse 43 to the unquenchable fire and then notes for you that some manuscripts add verses 44 and 46 which are identical to verse 48. So most translations in one way or another note for us that verse 44 and 46 doesn't appear in the earliest and best manuscripts that we have. And you see what would happen is that the scribes who copiously and meticulously um, made copies of our New Testament, the scribes sometimes would add something to a copy of a portion of Scripture. Listen, not to change what the passage meant or said in any way, but to either clarify a particular passage or to emphasize something the passage was already saying. The latter is the case here. Verses 44 and 46 emphasize the lasting permanence of hell, which verse 48 already emphasizes. That hell, verse 48, is a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so the scribes added verses 44 and 46 merely to emphasize the horrific forever nature and the permanence of hell. Now other translations, as I mentioned, have made the choice to embed verses 44 and 46 into the flow of the narrative but the important thing to note about that choice is that it doesn't change the meaning of the text in any in any way shape or form verse 48 is still present and verses 44 and 46 are merely emphasizing what verse 48 already states okay so enough of that the second principle that our lord teaches his disciples is the principle of Holiness, the principle of holiness. And if you're taking notes, this one's twofold. On the one hand, here, Jesus teaches that as Christians, we should never lead others into sin. And on the other hand, next week we'll look at this, we should take our own sin seriously. And what this is here is essentially a a strong call to holiness. Perhaps the strongest call that we see in all of, all of Scripture from the very lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. So first we see the strong warning to not lead other Christians into sin. Look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck he had been cast into the sea. This is frightening language. To cause to stumble means to to entrap, to ensnare, to cause someone to sin in a serious way. This is a a serious warning. The Lord Jesus is not mincing words here. This is a solemn warning from our Lord. Better that a 2,000 pound grinding stone be tied around your neck and you be thrown into the sea facing sure and horrific death than for you to be the cause of sin in someone's life or lead another Christian into sin. That's the warning. What a horrifying image. Historically, some Gentile nations used this form of execution. And so not only was it horrific to the Jews, but it was a despised form of execution by the Jews. And Jesus is saying, even this horrific type of execution is preferable than you leading another believer, another Christian into sin. What a warning to his own to His disciples and brothers and sisters, to us about protecting one another and being an instrument in the Redeemer's hands to foster holiness in the lives of one another rather than causing others to sin. You see, when you become a Christian, not only does your relationship with God change from enemy and rebel to now you are a child and beloved of God through faith in Jesus Christ, but also your relationship to other believers changes. You say, how so? You no longer look to use others for your own selfish purposes, to exploit other people. You no longer look to destroy people, but to serve them and to build them up. You no longer look to harm other people, but to help them. And what is your goal in the Christian life? To help others do what? And vice versa. To become more and more like Jesus. To be holy. To be set apart from sin and devoted to Christ. By the grace of God, that's what we desire to be. And we're called to be holy in Scripture. This is why we're called holy ones. Saints. Not in the sense that we're some kind of a little god or idol, but saints in the sense that we are God's set-apart ones. Set-apart from sin unto the purposes of Christ. Devoted to Christ. We're called to be holy. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. This is the will of God. Your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 7. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. That is that we would continually become more and more like Christ. That's what sanctification means. It says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3. That Christians who have their hope fixed on Christ purify themselves just as He is pure. We are God's set-apart ones. We are God's holy ones called to live holy lives. And since this is the case, Jesus says, don't ever be the cause of stumbling in another believer's life. And so the question that I want to ask is what are the ways that we can cause people to sin? What are some ways that we can cause other Christians to stumble and sin? And might I add that we might be a bad testimony to non-believers. I think we can do this very actively. We can cause others to sin very actively by being sexually immoral with another Christian. Being in a sinful relationship where you are doing things that belong only in in the marriage bed within the confines of a loving marriage between one man and one woman. You can cause one another to sin by robbing people of their virginity. By leading them into actions that dishonor God. By being intimate with someone not your spouse, not your husband, not your wife. We can cause one another to stumble or to sin or to struggle by the way that we dress. This is, by the way, both for men and for women. We can do this through the venue of social media now, through the images that we post about of one another. That we sometimes might post things that that are not wise and appropriate, and we might cause other people who are looking at those images to struggle in their hearts. Social media is becoming a major venue where you can do this. Where you can cause other people to struggle and even to sin. We can do this relationally. We can do this relationally by slandering one another. By gossiping about one another. By undermining others with our words or our actions. Hear me. By not practicing forgiveness and reconciliation. Where we are humble enough to ask for forgiveness or to freely extend forgiveness. We can cause other believers to sin by not owning up to our own sins or our own faults, so that we cause other people bitterness or consternation. And yes, ultimately, we are not the direct cause of somebody sinning against God. Every single one of us are responsible for our own sin, but we can certainly be people who influence one another in that direction. We can cause people to sin by our bad example, and witness in the home for instance let me ask you for those of you who are adults me included how do you talk about other people in the context of your home from the church how do you talk about the president how do you talk about government officials how do you process through your own views on things your kids are watching you younger older we can be a bad example in the context of our workplace of our jobs. This is especially true in terms of bringing shame to the name of Christ before unbelievers. So this is another another level of application I realize. By complaining, undermining our company, undermining our boss, being discontent and expressing that discontentment continually as believers in the context of a workplace, we can cause people to stumble through social media. May I just encourage us Two things, and there are many other things to consider. But before you post things on social media, consider a couple of things. One, what is your motivation? What is your motivation? Why do I want to post what I'm about to post on social media? Am I angry? Am I frustrated? Is this an area where I just want to vent and everybody needs to know about what I think? Is this an area that is a pet peeve of mine? More often than not, brothers and sisters, I can assure you that you probably should refrain from posting that. The second consideration that I would encourage you with is this and myself. Consider your audience. There will be non-believers and believers watching that. Okay, for the non-believer, obviously it could bring shame to the name of Christ. It could also be a wonderful witnessing opportunity, depending on how we do it, But think even about other believers. Is this going to be helpful, edifying, unifying to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, whether in this country or beyond? We need to be asking ourselves those questions. We can cause people to sin in the context of our home, with our spouse and our kids. You know how to get under your spouse's skin, husbands. You're just like your mother or something along those lines yikes i can assure you them's fighting words if you haven't experienced that already right young couples never young husbands don't do that okay don't do that you're just like your mother them's fighting words okay unless you had a godly wonderful mother okay maybe that and that's a different story or instead of listening to our wives men what do we say honey calm down calm down how has that worked for you over the years right What about you, ladies? You're a terrible leader. What kind of a man are you? And instead of appealing to him, praying for him, supporting him, you're continually nagging at your husband. What about for us as parents? What about for us as parents? We can provoke our kids to anger by yelling at them by speaking at them um, condescendingly as if they were animals rather than little creatures made in the image of God or older creatures made in the image of God, by having unbiblical or arbitrary expectations, expectations that we don't even place on ourselves. Hear me, the self-righteous parent is always harder on others in the home and outside of the home than they are on themselves. All of these are ways that we can contribute To others falling into sin or leading others into sin. Brothers and sisters, we must be careful. We can do this intentionally, but more often than not unintentionally as believers. We don't intend to hurt. We don't intend to destroy, but we end up doing that because we're sinners saved by grace. We still struggle. And I want you to sit down and prayerfully consider before the Lord this week, how have you maybe sinned in one of those areas by causing somebody around you to stumble that way, to struggle, where you haven't fostered, helped to foster holiness, Christ-likeness in their life. And come before the Lord and confess your sin to the Lord. There is forgiveness at the foot of the cross for us as believers, isn't there? Jesus said, "It is finished." To tell us, "Die." It stands finished. He paid for our sins, but He wants to, to for us to continue to come before Him, confess our sins, acknowledge our sins, be renewed in the spirit of our minds through His Word, so that we would grow in those areas and become more and more holy. I encourage us to do that this week. On the positive side, what are ways that we can help others in holiness? What are ways on the positive side that we can help others foster holiness in the lives of others instead of leading them into sin? Well, can I begin in the home? Men, you can do this. You can promote and foster holiness and, and, and delight in the Lord and your wife by taking a proactive and engaged approach to loving your family and leading your family in the home. Nothing more beautiful than a man leading in the context of the home. So can I ask you, are you on the basic level reading the Bible with your family? Praying informally or formally? Are you checking in with your wife and kids during these difficult times to see how they're doing? Checking in as to how their thoughts are going? Asking pointed questions, open-ended questions? Have you been sharing even encouragements for them and even confessing your own struggle? I had to do that this week, confessing my own anxiety and my own fear about certain things. You know what? That makes Christ shine all the brighter, doesn't it? Because it it sends the message to our family that it's it's not just them that need Jesus. It's Daddy who needs Jesus too. Are you leading by helping to guard, not micromanage, but guard your dear wife? So that she would be holy. Protecting her in what she's watching. What are you allowing your family to be exposed to? Second Corinthians 10.5 says that we need to be taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Man, are you leading in that? Are you helping foster holiness in your home? Purity? And the things that you will allow your family to be exposed to? See, this is a way, brothers, that we can... Promote and foster holiness in the lives of our wives and and that they would be encouraged and joyful. But what's typically our answer when we're abdicating our responsibility? You know, she's doing a good job on her own. No, it's your loving responsibility and privilege first to love, serve your family for the glory of Christ. And so often husbands say, my wife keeps nagging at me, etc. I'm tired of it. Right? But you know what? There may be a sense in which there are attitudes that your wife is showing toward you, and those things need to be dealt with as well. But can I just encourage you and I? You and I can help not lead our wives into sin by way of exasperation, frustration, and anger, etc. By doing what Christ has called you to do as a Christian man, to love, lead, protect, and provide for your family. By the grace of God, and by the grace of God alone, we can do that. If you don't know how... Ask the Lord for help. And if you don't know how, seek help in the church from other men who can help you do that. Even during these times, we need to do that. Because right now, it's almost like a, like God has taken a flashlight to show us what's in our hearts through this period of quarantine and isolation. Not to show us new things, but to expose the depth of our sin. And so how much more should we be looking for help, brothers, in this area? Listen, your wife cannot ultimately blame her sin on you. Each of us are responsible for our own sin. But you and I can help by being obedient to Christ by the grace of God. By obeying Ephesians 5.25 and following. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, Having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Ladies, ladies, how's your inner thought life, attitude, and behavior toward your husband and kids and toward others? Even though he's not perfect even though he's not, he's he's often weak, not always engaged as he should be? Are you honoring your husband by God's grace, speaking the truth in love to him, appealing to him, affirming his leadership in the home in every possible way that you can? Or are you contributing to his sin by nagging at him? Speaking down to him, condescending to him, operating independent of him, making your own decisions, not putting the ball on his court by the grace of God, by inviting him to lead your family and praying that he would do that. Again, your husband cannot ultimately blame his sin on you. He's responsible for his own sin before the Lord. But you can certainly help by obeying the Lord in this area. Ephesians 5.22, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself, Christ, being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything, to their own husbands and everything. And Titus 2.4 says that you are to love your husband, to love your children. What's my point? That instead of contributing to others' sin in the home and elsewhere, husbands and wives and all of us can help promote holiness in one another's lives rather than leading one another into sin. We can help by walking in obedience to the Lord by the grace of God, by following the Word of Christ and doing what He's called each of us to do in fulfilling our responsibilities. What are some other ways in context we can help others along in holiness instead of causing them to sin? How about this? Especially during this time, by being accountable to one another. Instead of causing someone to sin, take ownership, especially during this time, of your brothers or sisters by calling them to be accountable, to be connected. Ask, are you connected to a fellowship group in a relational way? Not in a a hitting, thumping them on the head with the Bible kind of way. Are they connected to a small group? Are they connected to church life? Here's another one. We can foster holiness in one another by our conversations. Are you using every opportunity right now by God's grace to point others to the word? This should obviously be happening in your life first, of course. But as you do that, are you pointing others to what God says? to what 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, that we need to take our thoughts captive to the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we speak the truth to one another in love, we are helping one another do that. Are you being an encourager? Rather than always being negative about everything, complaining about circumstances and the way that things should be, and when are we going to get back to those things? Are you looking for evidences of God's grace to be grateful and express gratitude to others? Even in their lives, having the heart of Paul in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, when he said, I am confident, Paul says, of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Are you an encourager during this time? Fostering happiness and joy in the lives of your other brothers and sisters through the word. Even as they see you process through hardship and difficulty. Last but not least, you can do this by praying for others. Praying for others. Oh, the power of prayer, brothers and sisters. Listen to, listen to the prayer of Paul in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9. Colossians 1 verse 9. For this reason also, Paul says, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. (laughs) When was the last time you prayed something along those lines for others? That God would grow them in holiness and fruitfulness and joy and thanksgiving and obedience. When was the last time you prayed that way, brothers and sisters? That's a sure way. Coming before our Heavenly Father and asking that the Lord would conform us into the image of Christ, that is a sure way to foster holiness in the lives of others. Brethren, more than ever before, we need to remember that we're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And as such, we need to live by kingdom principles to, practically, to a pra- practice a love that is not narrow-minded and exclusivistic, and that rather than being the cause, direct or indirect, of someone falling into sin, that you and I should take ownership of others so that they would thrive in holiness and vice versa. Next week, we're going to look at verses 43 through 50. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for the fact that you have shown us your great love and that our call by the power of your spirit and by your grace is to love one another as you have loved us. Lord, you've also saved us that we would be holy, that we would be set apart from sin and be devoted to serving our master who is Christ. Lord, grant us the grace to do that, the power to do that. We thank you for the fact that there is forgiveness when we come to you and renewal, so that we would be people who follow after Jesus and obey everything that he has commanded us to do. We thank you for this time in Jesus name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.